thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our executive pastor, Pastor Kevin Kelts. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Got your Bibles today. Go ahead and get them out and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We thought we were going to end the Irresistible series last week with that masterful Easter sermon. It was awesome. Uh, but as I was talking to Pastor Jared, I was like, I think, I think we can extend it one more week because there's some things that he touched on last week that we really need to, to take a little bit further. How many, just raise your hand and wave it for me. If you have really been blessed by this sermon series or learned something, yeah, man, hands all over the place. I have. I've enjoyed it so much. And really, it's, it's been taken from this book by Andy Stanley, called Irresistible. And I would encourage you to buy that book and read it. It's, it's, it's a great read and read it again. And I bet I've read it about 12 times. It's just an awesome, it's an awesome book. And uh, I would encourage you to do that. But today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue what Pastor Jared started last week. Pastor Jared talked about how many people in this generation, and if you look around at this generation, and I said it earlier, if you're alive today, you're a part of this generation. So don't think about the kids. I'm talking about all of us. People in this generation, there's many that have left the church. They've, they've left faith. They were maybe raised in faith, but somewhere along the way, they left faith. And when you go and you start to talk to these people that did this, rarely will you ever find somebody that had a problem with Jesus. They went, oh man, that Jesus, he just loved too many people, and that's just too much for me, so I just needed to leave the faith. That's never the reason. Most people usually say something like, well, there was just something that was taught from the Bible. There was something that somebody showed me in the Bible, and, and that's just something that, you know, just didn't hit me right, and I just can't agree with, with a, a teaching like that, and it, and it always comes down to the sacred text, the Bible. Many times, uh, people have been taught something from the Bible that was taken a lot of times when you start to do some study out of context. Has that ever happened to you before? Somebody showed you something in the Bible, they took it out of context to make their own point. A lot of people have left the faith because of, of something like that. And, and it's usually the stumbling block comes from the Old Testament. Everybody say Old Testament. So we're going to talk about the Old Testament because for weeks and weeks and weeks, we've been talking about we now are not under the law. We now are living not in the Old Covenant, not in the covenant that God established between, through Moses with the nation of Israel. That has been made completely obsolete. Jesus came and he started a new covenant that we all live in. And so what do we do with this Old Testament though? Because there's many people that 
they leave the faith because of something that they read in the Old Testament. And, and I would even go as far as to say this, many of us, like me, diehards, who have only ever known church, only ever been to church, and we're going to be a part of the church forever, some of us have a little bit of struggle with some of the things that we read in the Old Testament. You see, most of our challenges with the Old Testament flow directly from an unwillingness to follow Jesus's and Paul's instruction regarding the Old Covenant. And Pastor Jared reminded us last week that Christianity, though, can stand on its own two New Covenant nailed scarred resurrection feet, right? You don't have to have that to be, it can stand on its own. You see, our faith actually does better without Old Covenant support. And I know that's like, wow, I can't believe that you just said that, Pastor, but stick with me and and don't read into something that I didn't say. Please hear what I'm going to say. And the reason that uh, that it it actually stands better without the Old Covenant is what this series has been all about. The Old Covenant has been made completely obsolete by the New Covenant. Think about it. Think about the first century church, the first century Christians. We're talking, when I say first century Christians, I'm talking about after what we celebrated last week, the death burial, we celebrated last week what? The resurrection. That started a movement. When he came back from the dead and they saw that he was dead, three days later, now they're sitting down eating breakfast with him. It changed everything and started a movement. These people, the first century church, they didn't leverage the Jewish scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament. Everybody say the Old Testament. They didn't take, when they were starting this thing, they didn't take the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures and leverage those when reaching out to people that didn't believe. Like I just read earlier a passage that Paul wrote to the church, to the Romans, the church in Rome, these people that were there, he didn't leverage to people that didn't believe there the Old Testament. Why? Why did he not do that? It's because they were not a part of the nation of Israel. They were not Jews. They had nothing to do with that. They were more into philosophy. They were more into Greek mythology. They, they weren't ever under the law because the law wasn't made to their people. That, that wasn't made with them. Do you all understand that? They weren't ever under the law. And guess what? They never even knew about it. So when in talking to them, the first century church, they didn't leverage that, the Old, Old Testament, they leveraged the event. They leveraged the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when you've seen a man crucified, you've seen him nailed to a tree, you've seen him die, you've seen him be put in a tomb, but afterwards, three days later, you're walking around and talking to this guy You don't need ancient props to prove your point when you're reaching out to somebody to come and join us in this belief. Come join us in the way. Current events and eyewitness testimony will suffice. So the Apostle Paul would certainly say, amen, this is what I did. This is how I did it. In his letter to non-Jewish believers in Corinth, he lists, and this is where we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he lists everything that in their day was considered an obstacle to their faith. So in moving forward, and this is going to be crazy to you, what he says, and, and, and I'll read it. This is, this is in the letter that Paul wrote. He says, Jews demand signs. So think about that. The nation of Israel 
those people that believe that way, they demand signs. These others, these people that don't believe, the Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. And listen to what he says. But we preach Christ crucified. He said that's what everything is revolving around is what? The event. Everybody say the event. That's what our focus is on. But then he says this. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and a foolishness to the Gentiles. So when they were coming to a lot of people in that time, to the Jews, they were saying Jesus was resurrected. He's the Messiah. And they were saying, no, no, there's no such thing as a new covenant. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. We're going to continue to live under the law. And so when they said Jesus to them in the cross, it was a stumbling block for them. When they would go to the Athenians and they would start to talk to them who they believed in Zeus and they believed in Greek mythology, it didn't make sense to them either. And then he goes later on in his, his uh, letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he says that, after he just says that it's a stumbling block, I'm thinking, then why is he, why is that? Why are, is that is all that you are going to know? Why is it just Jesus Christ and him crucified? It's because Paul knew that the church of Jesus Christ would be able to stand on its own two new covenant, empty tomb, resurrected feet. That is what we stand on. So unlike Peter and Paul, who had a disadvantage in preaching Christ, here's the thing. We have in this modern day an advantage. Because if you talk to people that are non-believers, or if you even talk to people that have left our faith now, and you mention Jesus, He's favorable to them. Listen, I'll tell you right now, this is somebody, when you're talking about Jesus, he, is, is, he lived a life that they wouldn't have any problem imitating. They would say, this was a great man. They may have a problem saying that he's God or that he is divine, but they would say, you know what? He lived an amazing life. He was an amazing person. People don't leave the church because of Jesus. Amen? People like Jesus. He's not the stumbling block now. We have put as the church other things that have become stumbling blocks. They have made our message, this great message, unnecessarily resistible. So when it comes to stumbling blocks in the faith, I'll tell you right now, the Old Testament has become a stumbling block. And I'm going to explain to you why. And some things that we need to do to start to change this. So what should we as New Covenant folks do with our old friend, the Old Testament? Well, to start, we just need to understand, again, I'm so glad that you've been coming and listening to these sermons because you've been learning how there are, there is an Old Covenant and there is a New Covenant and they're completely different and they don't come together. One made the other one obsolete. We live in the New Covenant. Now, when you start to understand that, it makes the Old Testament easier to read and things start to make sense. Also, we could start to call it something more accurate that reflects what it actually is. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to do what I'm about to suggest right away because it would kind of be hard to do, but maybe in your mind you can start to switch some of the verbiage and some of the things that you say. See, while the Old Testament does include the Old Covenant, that's not all that it has. Pastor Jared's talked about it. The Old Covenant is the covenant that came through Moses to the people of Israel, okay? But 
even before that, in the Old Testament, there's the story of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's also in there. There's also the story of the covenant that God made with, with David. So there's, there's more to the Old Testament than just the Old Covenant, a lot more. The two most accurate and least offensive options to be able to start to call the Old Testament would be this, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. Either the Jewish Scriptures... Or the Hebrew Bible. The, I, I, I'm just saying, consider not calling it the Old Testament anymore. And consider either calling it the Jewish Scriptures or the Hebrew Bible. Either one of these designations will certainly remove unnecessary option, obstacles for people in your circle of influence like Jewish people. Listen, I read an article this last week where they did a study, a nationwide study, and they were looking for the city that is the most diverse city in the nation. Do you know who they came up with as the most diverse city in the United States of America? You would think Los Angeles. You, I was up there. You would think uh, New York. That was up there. You know, New York was number three. You know who was number one? Houston. We live in Houston, Texas, the most diverse city in America. And the, th the way that we have done Christianity for so long, there's some things that we've put as stumbling stones for, to be able to reach out to certain people, namely Jewish people. For you to talk to a Jewish person and start to get out your Bible and say, I'm going to read from the Old Testament, that can all the, automatically start to put somebody that's a Jewish person off. Because, listen, the Old Testament is, is, is not old to them. Nothing new has come for them. They still believe that their Jewish scriptures is what it's... It, listen, calling it old technically is a doctrinal, doctrinal statement. To refer to the Jewish scriptures as old assumes that something new and better has come and it has taken place. And listen, we do agree with that. But if you throw that in somebody's face that doesn't believe that way, guess what? Shut down. They're not going to listen to you. Guess what? Even to a non-believer, they don't believe that way either. It's not old to them either. So let's take a step back and refer to the Hebrew Bible as, well, the Hebrew Bible. The content of the official Hebrew Bible is almost identical to our Old Testament. The primary difference is just the arrangement of the uh, titling and the content. What if instead of the Old and New Testament text, we labeled it as the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible? It's just a thought. Now, don't get offended just yet. Please, please hear me Ah, whereas our New Testament contains descriptions of the New Covenant, guess what? The Old Covenant is still in our New Testament. It's not just the New Covenant in our New Testament. And whereas the Old Testament contains contents of God's uh, Old Covenant, it's, it's not just as well. That as well. The term Bible simply translated just means this, books. Everybody say books. That's what Bible means. It is a book of books. So why not be consistent and make it a book divided into two parts, the Hebrew books and 
the Christian books. It would be clearer. It would be more accurate. You see, I'm not saying that we need to do away with the Old Testament because it's become a stumbling block to some people. I am not saying that at all. Not at all. I did not say that. We need the Old Testament. We just need to bring more clarity to keep it from being a stumbling block. And I'm going to prove to you here in just a minute that Paul was a master of doing exactly what I am talking about. See, if renaming half of your Bible this morning all of a sudden strikes a nerve inside of you and you say, well, bless God, that sounds sacrilegious, brother. Let let me remind you that God did not name the Old Testament the Old Testament. And neither did Jesus. In fact, when you study your New Testament or the Christian Bible, you will find out that Jesus referred to the Jewish scriptures as what? The law and the prophets. You can go and look in the, uh, the writer Matthew. He records it several times, and he, he tells us that Jesus, when speaking in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 22, that he calls it the law and the prophets. Paul did the same thing. So if you really want to go to extreme with this thing, you could just start calling it the law and the prophets. I think that's a little silly. I don't think we need to go that far. It might be a little bit over the, prop, over the top, but just go with the Hebrew Bible. You see, nobody in the Bible used the term the Old Testament when referring to the entire group of the Jewish Scripture. Paul did use the term old, but in only describing the Old Covenant, not the Jewish Scripture. So let me bring your attention to another part of these stumbling block, and I hope I still have your attention this morning. Preachers, teachers, evangelists, I for one have done this over and over as a disservice to you who are listening. We have used this one phrase that has caused so many problems, and we're going to dive into it, but this is the phrase. The Bible says. We say that all the time. Well, the Bible says. Well, well, just a second. Now, the Bible says, we say this, many times it's because we can't remember chapter and verse of where it's at, and so we go, the Bible, well, you know, the Bible says, and then we quote what what it says, but we say, the the Bible says, rather than saying, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote, or rather than saying, you know, Matthew recorded Jesus as saying, we say The Bible says we as Christians are generally quick to do the same thing that we've seen our pastor do. So when we're talking to somebody and they say something that we don't agree with and we want to trump them, man, we want to get our point across. We go, well, you know, the Bible says, right? And when we do that, we're trying to leverage the authority of the Bible. Everybody say authority. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a point. The Bible is the ultimate authority, and so I'm really not sure where it's at, but I'm just going to tell you right now, by using the authority of the Bible, the Bible says, here's the problem. We're trying to leverage the authority of the Bible and not the authority of the authors who wrote the letters 
or the books, or even Jesus himself said this, and it's so unfortunate. This approach has undermined, and I'm telling you today, it continues to undermine the credibility of our faith. Why? Why, Pastor Kevin? It's because supporting our faith, what the Bible says, communicates that the foundation of our faith is the Bible. And that's why people have left, because they go, the foundation of our faith, everything that we stand on, everything that we believe, everything that makes me a Christian is the B-I-B-L-E, and then we send our kids to college, and they go into a class, and a professor gets up there, and he says, guess what? May some of you small-minded people are in here today. You call yourself Christians, but I'm going to prove to you through archaeology, or I'm going to prove through you through history that what your Bible says in the Jewish scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, is wrong. And because we propped our kids up on the foundation of our faith is a book and not an event, they leave class that day questioning, is anything even real? Because what was their foundation? Was it Jesus or was it a book? Listen, Pastor Jared said this last week, the foundation of our faith is not an inspired book. While the texts include our New Testament or our Christian Bible play an important part in helping us to understand what it means to follow Jesus. They're not the reason we, we follow Jesus. Am I saying, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying throw the Bible away. We must have the Bible. The Bible is amazing, okay? I'm just saying we need to change some of our verbiage because the things that we're saying is creating a false foundation for people and they're leaving the faith because of it y'all see the trick y'all see what's going on you see we don't believe because of a book we believe because of the event that inspired the book to be written amen the event not the record of the event is what birthed the church to say it a different way the bible did not create christianity christianity come on somebody created the bible the christian faith existed decades before there was a the bible you get that right jesus lives dies is buried when he comes out, he doesn't have the Bible and start handing them out and go, basic instructions before leaving earth, as some of us were taught. That's not what happened at all. He started a movement. These men were inspired in the movement by the Spirit of God to now start to write these that they had no idea would be canonized and put into a book with gold around the ends of the pages. It didn't exist. And yet the Bible, uh, and yet the church still moved forward and it stood strong. In fact, it stood against a Roman Empire. All of the cards were stacked against them. And it changed the world forever. Listen, when we say the Bible says, it insinuates that the roots of our faith go no deeper than the 4th century decision to combine 1st century documents 
with the Jewish scriptures into what we call the Bible today. We would do our generation a great service if we would leverage the actual source of our authority rather than the 4th century title somebody gave to our collection of sacred manuscripts. I know this sounds strange, and I know it sounds unnecessary, but please consider this. Which came first, the Gospel of John or the collections of writings that we call the Bible? The Gospel of John. John was inspired... And he wrote other people. And remember, they didn't have copy machines back there. They had no such thing as a printing press. So these things were written on paper, and somebody had to take that piece of paper and then copy it. There was a person in that town who would copy and write this down. And these things, these books, these letters are now being passed around, and they are sacred to these people. But they're not going, this is the Bible. They're just going, did you read what Matthew wrote? Did you read what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth? Let me ask you this. Was, when, when was the book that John wrote inspired? Was it inspired the moment that he saw what he saw took ink to paper, or was it inspired over 200 years later when somebody got together and said, hey, this thing should be canonized and we should call it the Bible. We should call it the New Testament. Which one was it? Which one came first? You see, the foundation is not the collection that we call the Bible. The foundation is the event that was passed on to one generation and one generation to the next generation. Guys, I'm telling you, this is what we have to get back to and we have to change our, our, our verbiage. So this is true of all of our New Testament documents. What's my point? My point is the inspired scripture predated what we refer to as the Bible 200 plus years and that that you say pastor is that important well listen to this before the internet it might not have been that important but now it is incredibly important in the information that we live in what I'm about to tell you may be new to you I hope not if it's a confusing it may stem from how you heard the Bible referred to and how you were taught about the Bible while you grew up but here it goes the documents included in our Bible are not inspired because they are in our Bible. You may have been taught that, but that's not the way it goes. They are included in the collection of documents that we call the Bible because of who wrote them, of what they contain, and when they were written. Hopefully you knew that, but if you didn't, now you know. So while we're accustomed to saying the Bible is inspired, it's more accurate to say the authors of the Scripture were inspired. You see how it's just a simple thing. It's a simple thing. But I was taught to always say, no, the Bible's inspired. This is what I believe. The Bible's inspired. No, the authors of the Scripture were inspired. That's what Peter and Paul thought. Listen, Peter's uh, thoughts on this topic, he said this, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. But listen to what he said. But prophets, though human, so think about these people, they were human, 
They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's recorded in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He said they were inspired by the Spirit of God to write these things down. That's what Peter said. This is what Paul said in his letter to Timothy. He said all Scripture is God-breathed. These authors were inspired, and so they wrote it down clearly the individually inspired documents like Matthew, Luke, Romans, for example, predated the collection and the publication of the individually inspired documents. Eventually, church leaders recognized these particular documents as authoritative and included them in our New Testament along, and they said they decided to pair them together with what we call the Old Testament or what you may now call the Jewish Scriptures. It was at the 4th century leader, this guy named uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, who first compiled a list of documents that would eventually be recognized and sanctioned by the church as what you and I now know as the New Testament. Let me ask you this. Has anybody ever picked up a Catholic Bible before? Anybody? Wave your hands at me. Have you ever noticed there's extra books in, in that Bible? Have you ever wondered why? Like, why does my Holy Bible, this is Holy Bible on the front of it, and it has 66 books, but when I pick up this other book, there's more than 66 books. Have you ever wondered why that is? Okay, even if you, it's, most Catholic Bibles will call those extra books the Apocrypha. And what that is, is those are books that were going around in that day when they were deciding which ones were going to be the, to make the end of the list, what we now know as the 66. Now, they'll say that we don't believe that those are the canonized Word of God. And so, uh, at that time, what was going on for... So, Jesus dies. When this, when this list came out in this letter, it was 336 A.D. So, Jesus dies. A hundred years goes by. Another hundred years goes by. Another hundred years goes by. Then 36 years goes by, and this list comes out for the first time. What's been happening is the church has been growing. It's been moving. It's not now just over here in Rome. It's not just now over here at what we know as the church in Corinth. It's moving all over the place. And there were people that were put in power like uh, the emperor Diocletian. In the late 3rd and early 4th century... What he did is he made having anything that had to do with the, the new movement, religion, he made it illegal to have those documents. And so remember, there wasn't a printing press. What they would do is like at night under, you know, with a pen and a piece of paper uh, or papyrus or whatever, they would, under a candlelight, they would, a guy would, would copy down word for word the book of Matthew for this one church to have. When Diocletian came in, he started, if you were caught with any of these books that were associated with that religion, you were to be executed. They would die. And so when they came together to canonize the scripture, one of the ultimate questions they asked is, what books were people willing to die for? So there's there's a book out there like the Gospel of Thomas. It didn't make the list because people weren't willing to die for the Gospel of Thomas. 
Now, there's reasons why there's the pseudepigraphal books that were written at the time. There were books that were being passed around at the church, and that time you can go study this stuff out. Pseudo, it means it was written under somebody else's name because back then women weren't allowed to write. So they would write under a man's name, inspired by God. Women, do you think you can be inspired by God to do some things these days? Do you think they were inspired by God back in those days? I actually preached a message on it at the first of the year, amen? But those books weren't taken because they couldn't prove who wrote them. But they knew, they came to the conclusion that these 66 books were inspired. People were willing to die for these things. And that's how we got the, the New Testament, what we call the New Testament. That's pretty awesome, huh? It's, a, it's amazing to me. These documents were considered sacred, though, this is my point, long before they were collected and published. People were willing to die for these things. Why is that important, Pastor? In light of this post-Christian context in which we live in today, it's time to stop appealing to the authority of a book, come on somebody, and appeal to make the case for the event that inspired people who were inspired now. And that's when you talk to people and you start to learn who wrote this. That people now took it and were willing to die for this. And when you talk to somebody, you don't say, the Bible says. You say, Peter said this. And he walked with Jesus. He had a relationship with him. He saw him die. He saw him raised from the dead, and he wrote these things. That's completely different to a person. You starting the conversation with somebody out and saying that, then, well, you know, the Bible says, so you need to change this. When we do that, here, and let me just say this too. The problem with saying the Bible says is what else the Bible says. Think about that. The problem with saying the Bible says is what else the Bible says. Like I said, we have a lot we've been talking about here lately is Old Covenant and New Covenant. You read a lot of the New Covenant in the New Testament, right? You read a lot of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. That's why it's become a stumbling stone. So you'll go to your friend and you're starting to talk to them about this movement, the faith, Christianity, the church, and everything that it's done for your life. And then you go, well, you know, the Bible says. And when you make that statement, you, you, you create a problem because of what else the Bible says. Because you are saying, well, you know, the Bible says that, you know, there was a, 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 a worldwide flood. And the Bible says that, you know, Israel migrated from Egypt to Canaan. And they'll say, well, I read a book by a professor who is an archaeologist who can prove that what your Jewish scriptures say is wrong. And you go, uh, uh. And they go, well, you know, I, I actually was in a class, and there's historians that claim that Israel didn't migrate to ancient Egypt. And all of a sudden, your 66 cards start tumbling down. Your house of cards starts to fall because it was built on the wrong foundation. Do you see what I'm saying? As it turns out, don't freak out. There is, in fact, evidence to support the flood narrative. 
okay? We have experts that will, will show that they can prove that. Israel's exodus from Egypt is also something that we have people that can prove that, okay? So don't, don't freak out. What I'm saying is, there is an, even if it wasn't, though, that wouldn't undermine the reality of the accounts of Jesus' life that are found in the New Testament today. You understand what I'm saying? It's not based upon a book. It's based upon an event. You see, the Bible says that husbands are not to divorce your wife, their wives. You say, okay, the Bible says you tell that to your friend, and then they go, oh, yeah, but I can go over here in your the Bible and show you where it gives men instruction of how to proceed on with the divorce. And you go, uh. Uh, and, then, and then you go, well, you know, the Bible says that Jesus died for our sins. And then they come back to you and they say, well, I can show you in the Bible that the Bible says that parents must die for their own sins and that their children must die for theirs as well. See, the problem is not what the Bible says. The problem is what else the Bible says. And you're here today and you're like, hey, pastor, but I get it. I get it. I've been coming here for six weeks, man. And I know that there's a new covenant. And it completely did away with the old covenant. And so I know they're misreading those scriptures. I'm not concerned about you right now then. I'm concerned about their faith. I'm concerned. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying that we start to change some things so now that we can go out and reach people that we have never reached before. My concern is the faith of the next generation, a generation that has an all-access pass to all things skeptical, all things critical, all things contemptible. I'm concerned about folks who have lost faith and they say, you know what, because of what the Bible says, I don't want to have anything to do with God. And many, perhaps maybe in this room, that are on the verge of losing their faith because of what the Bible says. We don't have our faith on this secure, firm foundation of the Bible. It's on the secure, firm foundation of, what did Paul say? Christ and Him crucified. The event. And then there's this. Oh no. You burst a lot of bubbles today, Pastor Kevin. Then there's this. The Bible doesn't actually say anything. Talk to me, Bible. It doesn't say anything. But we say all the time, the Bible says, listen, Mark had a lot to say. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say. Jesus had a lot to say, but, but here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say anything, so we would do well to stop putting words in the Bible's mouth. Amen. The world would be less confused if thoughtful Christians would refrain from quoting the Bible and would reference instead the extraordinary people that God chose as His spokespeople. Anyone who has lost faith in Jesus because they lost faith in the Bible lost faith unnecessarily. So when pastors, teachers, and writers, and parents use the, the, the Bible says as a quote, they say to the next generation what we set them up for an unnecessary crisis. Because here's, and this is the point I want to get to. When we use something or what somebody says, and we use that to then manipulate, we see somebody's doing something that we don't like. And so we say this, or somebody says this, therefore you need to change what you're doing. We set whatever this or whatever who said this as up as the ultimate authority. 
right? So it's been happening all of our lives. Like, people will say, you've heard this before. Well, the Constitution says, right? And when, when, when somebody says that, we go, that's the ultimate authority. So if you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing that's in that Constitution, or if you're just not doing anything, this says, there's some things that says you're supposed to be doing. You need to change that. We say, well, you know, the, in, in school, we said, the, well, the principal says, the ultimate authority, right? Or we say, you know, the, the work handbook says, in the church, we say, the Bible says. And when we do that, we are saying that everything in the Bible has equal authority. Or authority. And I'm here to tell you today, everything in the Bible is not equally authoritative. I'll say it again. Everything in the Bible is not equally authoritative, but when we say the Bible says, that's when they come back to us and they go, okay, let's talk about biblical marriage. And you're like, okay, biblical marriage. And because you've said that the Bible says, you've set the Bible as equal authority all the way around. And they go, okay, well, I just went up big biblical marriage, and the first marriage that I found when I was just looking through it was Solomon. He had a biblical marriage. In fact... He had many biblical marriages. And listen to this. He expounded the definition of biblical marriage to include all of his concubines. And they'll go, so are you saying that I can have a polygamy and I can have a bunch of wives? Are you saying that I can have not just a bunch of wives, but I can have concubines? King David did, and he was a man after God's own heart. What do you got to say about that? Well, that's a bad example. Let's just talk about, let's talk about really what you're supposed to do in a marriage. I mean, that was a bad example. You know, the Bible says about what you're supposed to do in marriage, and they'll go, well, I'll take you to Exodus right here, and it says that if a person is caught in adultery, you're supposed to take the person that was caught in adultery and kill them. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, and over in Leviticus, it says if a man takes a wife... Biblical marriage, this is how biblical marriage is supposed to work. And he finds out that she's not a virgin. He can take her back to her dad's house, and he will kill her. That's what the Bible says. Do you see, you see what I'm saying? And you're like, Pastor, come on, you're being crazy. We all know that that doesn't apply to us. But they don't when you say the Bible says. You have set the Bible up as equal authority from the front to the end. They don't know that the Old Testament means Old Covenant. They don't know that the New Testament means New Covenant. You just said that the Bible says, and so when you're trying to reach out to them, they come to you and they say, listen, I don't want nothing to do with your religion because it's schizophrenic, man. You're saying love over here. You're saying lay down your life for your wife over here and over here, you're saying killer. I don't want to have any. Do you see what I'm saying? We've set the Old Testament up and it has now become a stumbling block for people. So we have to change the way that we think about it. We have to change the way that we talk about it. And listen, I don't have much time and I'm just going to run through this. But Paul was the greatest at doing this. I'll, I'll, you just write this down and go look at it later because I'm, I'm going to run through this really quick. But there's a story in Acts chapter 13 that we're going to talk about real quick. And there's also a story in Acts chapter 17. 
Before I get to that, I'm just going to say this. He was quoted, Paul, if anybody had any argument to use, the Bible says, one of the most learned men in the Bible, they actually, he was so learned, uh, such a learned Jew, they didn't call Jesus the king of the Jews. They literally called Paul, when he was Saul, they called him the king of the Jews because he knew so much. He was so learned. If anybody could have used, the Bible says, when he was starting the church and outreaching and making this thing blow up, it would have been him. Okay, and so he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone. Why do you say that, Paul? He said to win as many as possible. And how are you going to do that, Paul? He said this, to the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. And then he starts to talk about the Jews right next. He says, to those under the law, I became like one under the law. Listen. There was nobody under the law when he wrote this. There was just people, Jews, that were acting like they were still under the law. So he says, I become like one of them so that I can reach them. He says, though I myself is not under the law. He explains it right there. He says, as to win those under the law, to those not having the law. Now he's talking about people like the Greeks, like the people that we're going to read about in Athens in just a second, who had nothing to do about, they had known nothing about Jehovah. They knew everything about Zeus, Okay. They didn't know nothing about a law. They were never under a law. They were never a part of any covenant. He says to them, he says, I become like one of them, not having the law, though I am free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. We learned about what's that. What's Christ's law? He says, this is the law. Love one another as I have loved you. Okay. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. Hang on, Paul. You're switching approaches. Why are you going all back and forth? And then he brings it to this. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save. Everybody say save. Go to your word study on that word right there that I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. He says, by all possible means. And so quickly, we go to this story in Acts chapter 13. He is, I'm telling you, he's such a learned uh, Jew. As a Pharisee, he was trained in the law. He studied under Gamaliel. His intellect and reasoning ability were second to none. And so he shows up in this synagogue with all of these these very learned Jews, okay? And he goes to them. They still believe that they're under the law. They still believe that Jesus is not the Messiah. And he starts talking to them. And it's brilliant. He's so smart. He's brilliant what he does. In Acts chapter 13, right before that, he starts talking about uh, uh, the, the Israel's migration from Egypt. He starts getting in common ground with them so they'll listen to him. He's like, I'm one of you. I, I, I came from the same people. He has the common ground. And then he walks the audience all the way from history up to King Saul, now to King David. And then he says this in, in, in verse 23. He said, from, man, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he has promised. That would, have been, that would have made him really mad when he said that, okay? From there, he dives right into the details of Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, burial, and, of course, the main event. And he says this, But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who have traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then he connects the dots. He said, We tell you the good news, what God promised to our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. And then he's not finished. Listen, guys. He dives back into the Jewish scripture. He starts quoting from memory the second psalm. Then he starts quoting the prophet Habakkuk, and they must have been, their minds must have just been blowing like, wow. 
This guy knows so much. No notes, no nets. It's amazing. And then he says this, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So what does he declare? The new covenant. He's like, the new covenant is here, man. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. That's the new covenant. A justification you are not obtain, able to obtain under the law of Moses. Translated, he says, Jesus did what Moses couldn't do. Jesus is way greater than Moses. And they would have been mad. So mad at what he just said. But they all got to thinking about it too. You know why? Because he came to them on their level in their learned terms, he had memorized their scripture, which used to be, I mean, it, it, it was still his scripture too. And he, he, he came to them on their level. And I'm telling you, there were people in this group that converted and started to follow the way because of the way that Paul came to them. Now get this. He was talking to Jewish people that were still convinced they were in the old covenant. How did he do with people that had no idea about any covenants, had nothing to do with God. That's the story in Acts chapter 17. So Paul's primary audience was not the Jews. It was the Gentiles. It was the people that had nothing to do with the law, had nothing to do with Jehovah God. God was for everybody. Amen? He was going to bless the entire world, the covenant with the Abrahamic covenant. I'll bless the entire world through you. So he goes, he's on this, this trip and he meets up with these Athenians, and he's waiting in this town of Athens for the arrival of Timothy and Silas, and he gets to talking to these uh, Stoic philosophers, and they're kind of like, wow, man, this is a guy that I didn't, I didn't know he would be like this. They thought he would be talking like he was to the Jews. But Paul comes in, and it's crazy. He is in, they take him to this, this their temple, and in this temple, it, you go, go read the story, there are idols everywhere. So think Greek mythology, all the Greek gods and goddesses, they're all there. They've carved them because they, beautiful sculpture, beautiful artwork. It was a beautiful culture, right? He's standing in the middle of this. If at any time you need to bring out and say the Bible says and go to Exodus and say there shall no be any graven images before me, this is the time, Paul. This is, let them have it, man. But Paul's mission was not to be right. Paul's mission was to change the world, to reach the world. So he said, I became like those that were under the law. I became like one of them. And when I got over here to Athens, to those that weren't under the law, I became like one of them. And this is what he says. He looks at all their statues, and he goes, people of Athens, I see that in every way, you are very religious. He gives them a compliment. He looks at these, graven Im these engraved images, <laughs> these false idols. He goes, man, you know something I love about your culture? Y'all are so religious. <laughs> what are you doing, Paul? seeker-sensitive message. What, you're, you're scared about what everybody thinks of you? No, that's not Paul at all. 
He resisted from saying the Bible says. His mission in life was to make a point. His mission in life was to make a difference. It was to go in and win some and to save some. And so he didn't quote Scripture. He quoted, go read it. He quoted one of their poets. He says, your poetry says... And then he gets them because there's all, think of all these Greek gods and goddesses, sculptures. And they had one that they called the unknown God. And he goes, you see that one over there? The, the unknown God? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, he starts to, to talk to them about this, this God. He employs a, 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 an unusual preaching technique. He, he starts to summarize Genesis and the account of creation, including a reference to Adam. But he doesn't say Genesis, and he doesn't say the name Adam. He taught Scripture without referring to Scripture. But why? Why did he do this Antioch? Why didn't he give them chapter and verse? Why was he so seeker-sensitive all of a sudden? Paul had referenced his Jewish source to all of these Jewish audience just a couple chapters before, and now all of a sudden, he is there doing it in a completely different way. See, when your mission is to win some and save some, you never give up influence unnecessarily. When your mission in life is to be right, maintaining influence isn't important. It doesn't matter. You're just going to be a rear end, right? The Bible says, the Bible says, you're going to go in and you're going to just make people mad. You're going to say, I'm right, and you're, you're wrong. Listen, I'm telling you, Paul does an unusual way right here, and I'm telling you, it's the way that we need to learn today. You realize that in his message to these people, he never mentions Jesus. He never mentions his name. The closest that he does is in verse 31, and he says this. He says, for speaking of this unnamed God, he's pointing to him. He's like, I know this God. And he said, this God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And let me just say something real quick about this. Who did he raise from the dead? The unknown God. Who did he raise from the dead? Jesus, right? So he does, he's mentioning Jesus without mentioning Jesus. But that might scare you right there. He says he set a day, God has set a day when he would judge the world. I do just want to say this right now. That judgment, he was not talking to you. He was talking to a group of people in that day that they were going to be judged. And if you go and you read in Romans chapter 13, he tells also talks about this judgment of God that was going to happen. And then in, in, in Romans chapter 13, he says when it's going to happen. It was going to happen. It was going to be happening quickly in that generation. You don't have to be afraid of a judgment from God coming in our future. That judgment already happened. We'll talk more about that in the future. But I'm saying he starts to leverage in this moment what they know, not trying to be right. And he says, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you the name of this guy. And in verse 32, it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And, and all of a sudden, he's like, hey, awesome, a two-part series. Awesome. He's like, in verse 33, it says, at that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul. 
and they believed. Paul's approach to the Gentiles in Athens differed significantly from his approach to the Jews in Antioch, but his message was the same. God has done something in the world on behalf of humanity. He has punctuated and authenticated with a great work by raising somebody from the dead. Come back for part two if you want to know his name. And guess what? They came back and they asked his name. So I'm going to ask the the worship team to come up here and we're going to close with this. It breaks my heart that our message has how some way through stumbling blocks become resistible. And it's just a couple tweaks that we could do to change it back to how it started. I showed you how Paul, I gave you an illustration this morning of two things that Paul did to show you that there's some things that have been so sacred to us, these sacred cows that we will not let go of that it's time for us to let go of some of these things, to rethink some of the things that we're saying. One of those things is just, it, it, it's hard to change these habits, but just stop saying what well, the Bible says. Are you saying we can't quote the Bible? That's not what I said at all. Go back and listen to the message. Just say, you know, Peter said, You know, you can even quote Jewish scripture if you want to. Moses said. They'll say, yeah, Moses did that. say that. Why? <laughs> Why did he write down in Exodus that you need to kill your wife if you find out that she's not a virgin? Why did he say that? And you'll say, well, let me take you over here and show you another point of view. This is what Jesus said, and this is what Paul said, and it all equals in love because we're in a new covenant. They were in an old covenant, and now it starts a dialogue, and they go, and what we refer to as the Bible starts to come alive to them. It's not a fight. So I'm just asking you, please consider it. Please consider what we're talking about. I'd ask you this. What would it hurt to try, to try these things? You don't lose anything by, by, by trying what I'm talking about. And I would ask you this. What is, what is the faith of the next generation worth to you? An enduring faith that we pass on to them. I say it's worth everything. So, Let's rethink some of the things that we've been doing. Let's relook at some of the things that we've been looking at. Let's start to live life in a new covenant the way that first century Christians did. Not starting something new, but going back to the way that it all started. Amen? Well, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you so much. God, I'm so excited about you. I'm so excited about everything that we've been learning about this perfect covenant that you made You actually made it with yourself and you included us with it. It's a perfect covenant. And as we start to get some of these things right, Father, in our spirit and in our mind and process these things, I thank you that you're showing us a better way to to take out some of these stumbling blocks that have been causing people to stumble or causing people to not even enter in to relationship with you, some of these things that actually have caused your message to become resistible. 
our prayer this morning is that we could get back to being irresistible. We declare that this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody said amen.